This is the EdTech Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. sitting there with a pen and paper. Virtual reality is an interesting medium where students can access a wide range of content. Hey everyone, I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and welcome to another episode of the EdTech Podcast brought to you by MarketScale. So this is going to be another good one, and I know it because we've got two education experts from a company that's given us some consistent, authentic ed tech back and forth conversations. I'm in the studio with first-timer Jamie Herbst. She's a customer success professional development manager, and I'm in here with second-timer Julie Robinson, customer success bilingual professional development specialist. Hello, good afternoon. Hello, yay, Julie and Jamie, we're here. So Julie and Jamie are joining us to analyze the nuances of, the impact of, and best practices for quality English language learning. In the fall of 2016, English language learners made up one-tenth of the public school population in the U.S., which is actually a huge amount when you quantify it. It's almost five million students. We're not just talking Spanish either. English language learners speak 150 different languages in the U.S., so the need is there for educators that can approach this with nuance and with care and with best practices in mind, and that's what we're breaking down today. So, Julie, Jamie... Welcome back and welcome for the first time. Thank respectively. you. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Here. Yeah, it's great to have you all in the studio. So to start off, I guess I kind of want to paint a picture a little bit of what it's like to have students that are English learners. So when a teacher first finds out that they have a student in their classroom whose first language is not English, is that often a point of stress? Do teachers freak out about that? Huge. Huge? Yes. Huge stressor? I would say it depends on the teacher, too. Is it a classroom teacher with a variety of students, or is it a specifically English learner's teacher who's expecting everyone in their class to be an English learner? Yeah, and is this this a normal thing for the school? Are we in a place where we have a, a variety of students coming in from different places, or is it like... A rural school or someplace that just really doesn't get an influx of language learners. Right, because I'm sure there are some districts that have an infrastructure already there, either with um, particular classrooms that are just for English learners, um, or if it's like a special, maybe, okay, we're going to put you in a few classes or a few hours every week to specifically hone in on this. Um, But yeah, like you mentioned, I mean, what happens when you are at a rural school and basically everyone just speaks English and all of a sudden you get a family move into your community who they basically only speak Spanish. Um, And now all of a sudden you have a student in your classroom that is only speaking Spanish or, you know, knows the bare minimum of English. How do they even begin to approach that? You know, is does that kind of throw their world for a loop? I've never been a rural teacher, but um, I would say one of the biggest things would be just to remember as a teacher, well, this child brings something with them. So what is it that they bring first of all and figuring out, okay, just it, hopefully it's not, it's yes, there's a barrier because of the language, but they've got some kind of knowledge coming in with them. 
Um, and I right, because think it's just as stressful for the student as it is for the teacher, and the teacher has to remember that. That's right, and we always yeah. want to think about best practices for English learners are best practices for all students. Mm. But I would guess being, you know, being a former teacher and working with a lot of teachers that say conferences or different schools, right. that when a teacher is in panic, oh no, what do I do now? Right. They hit social media, they connect with other teachers who have have this experience, they do research. So that is, I would think, what a lot of teachers do is reach out and try to educate themselves on some best practices and what is the best scenario I agree. in this situation. I think that some people probably, as teachers, probably look at it and go, without a knowledge of what, well, what are best English learner practices, and they're thinking just language, and so, well, maybe I translate everything, maybe I without going, oh, it's actually just overall best practices, what's best for my lowest students, like you just said, is best for my English learners as well. Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, because I guess the the standards and the approaches just have to be tweaked a little bit because the underlying, um, I guess the underlying mission remains the same regardless if you're teaching a student that doesn't understand English or you're dealing with someone who's only grown up speaking English. So uh, let's break down kind of the differences between these two environments. You've got your uh, more urban city schools um, that are probably going to have more diversity in the classroom, maybe teachers and infrastructures that are more prepared for English learners. Now compare that to maybe the smaller cities, smaller towns. We can go as far as rural towns. How equipped are most teachers to handle um, English language learners and biliteracy students in both of those really generalized spaces? I'd say they're probably more well-equipped than they know. They just okay. don't know it. Yeah. They have yes, what it sure. takes to be a good teacher for an English learner, but they probably haven't had any of the professional development to go along with it to show them that, oh, what you just did works with any student that you're working with. And I think that's really important for a teacher to boost their confidence and saying, okay, well, okay, you're not, maybe you're not ESL certified or whatever the case is, whatever it takes for your state or your city, but you do have what it takes to help this student learn mm. English. And I think I 110% agree with what Julie just said. Like, if you think vocabulary in the classroom is so important in reading comprehension for all students and teachers are always looking into how can we you know include that academic vocabulary or different levels of vocabulary and if you think about taking a step back with an English language learner you want to have visuals you want to write about it see it see it written see see all the different words or yeah. work on those SAT ACT type words <laughs> right. tier words and and providing those extra visuals for the students is helpful, again, for all those students. So just like Julie said, they ha teachers have that background knowledge. They just need to know uh, the confidence in that that really will work with these students. Are there any structured resources that are available kind of at a, a standard level? Um, maybe it differs state to state. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of different materials available that maybe they don't necessarily say, oh, English learner mm -hmm. on them, but anything from having um, vocabulary cards in the classroom that you can use. Um, a lot of big companies that are curriculum companies have an additional piece with the, the lesson, and in one part it'll say, oh, 
for English learners. So if you have ELLs in your classroom, here are some ESL strategies to use for reteaches or gotcha. Um, I know our company does that with um, it, it, on a lot of our lessons. We'll have an additional part and they'll say, oh, for ESL, here's some additional um, things that you can do to help them. I think a lot of products now have those modifications also, um, not just ESL, but different types of modi modifications or scaffolding that you could do with all students, too. So I, I agree. I think looking at your what your core is and the supplies that you already have or those resources you already have and looking for that little extra on the side saying with ESL students or with English learners, you could do these this variety of things right most people that um, most teachers that are working with students if they have had students that are struggling in their classroom they're already doing something special with them some type of intervention any type of intervention that they're using with their lower students that are struggling is still going to work well with um, with your language learners I wanted to say Spanish sure. speaking but we're talking about any language it doesn't right. matter what their language is so I think that and I think just remembering it, it's keeping that concept of anything visual, like Jamie said, any type of repetition that they can do, any time that they can have those conversations that are with their peers, they're getting some of that speaking, getting some of the writing in, getting the repetition, that's going to be beneficial to them. Yeah. And really getting in some of that good classroom management also, getting in some a process of so they know what they're being asked, asked to do. Yeah. Asked. Really? <laughs> My friend. She's an English learner still. I love what it. What they're being Aren't asked to do. Aren't we all? <laughs> but, but back to your question about resources. Uh -huh. Resources in general, I, I feel like there are so many resources that teachers have available to them. And anything that they have can be used. Yeah. And I think that that's something to remember. We don't have to go out and spend a whole bunch of money on something. When you have stuff there, you just need to modify it meet your needs and your students needs yeah speaking of money um so cities like we've established naturally are more likely to have english learners and the national center for education statistics confirms it it is just yeah that's just kind of what happens um it's how the population reflects in those larger cities and often in our largest metropolitan areas it's those inner city schools that can lack the most funding um, there's a specific march report from edbuild that i want to reference here real quick, uh, they found that, quote, public school pupils enrolled in urban districts receive on average around 2,100 less per pupil than their suburban counterparts and about 4,000 less than students who attend rural remote schools, which surprised me. Um, maybe it's not surprising for people that live and breathe education every day, but does this funding challenge create any extra challenges when trying to develop curriculum or just generally try to teach or prepare teachers for teaching English learners? I would say in, yes, because you'd have less funds to purchase things like our product, iStation, sure. whereas maybe in a rural school with a student with more funding, you'd have you'd have that money to be able to purchase more resources. Yeah. So, um, but you know, we get into a spot where having too many resources can be really overwhelming, and we see that in a lot of the schools we go to too, because teachers then are you know we have all these great products, but which one should we focus on? Mm -hmm. I yeah, I, I agree with that, and I'm. Just to add to that, I think a lot of times it's it really comes down to being really wise about the budget that you have and really so 
if you haven't heard of Weta Prime or Weta Prime Two, that it's um, it's kind of a tool that you can use as teachers or as uh, we use it as a company to make sure that our product is good for English learners. Right. And it goes through all of these different correlation pieces to make sure that we fit in this area and that we're we get have the supports in place for English learners. Mm. Um, and that's something that teachers can definitely look at. And I think that if you're it, anyone who's a stakeholder really should look at that and to determine is this product really the best product for these students? Right. And then knowing that, you know what, if I get this product, not only is it good for my English learners, it's also good for my students that are lower and need extra support of any sort. Right. So. Right. It helps create kind of a, an infrastructure of support for maybe your whole classroom, your whole district, um, could set a standard for the state even. Who knows? That's exciting stuff. So what are unique challenges? And like, let's just get into... Uh, English learners as students, um, you know, less of, of the challenges that come for the teacher. I want to talk about the students now. What are unique challenges that come with getting English learners to capture that same growth as some of their peers, even beyond just the basic language barriers? Are there any issues with engagement, any issues that kind of compound by being an English learner in a classroom that, you know, is more focused on English or English language learning in general. I think the confidence building is huge at first. Mm. You know, the students I taught in the high school, so with an ESL classroom or English learners classroom. And so just them being able to function during the day. What do I do at lunch? I need to socialize. You know, how do I go from place to place and what's the culture like? And I want to fit in and all that stuff. So really looking at culture and just getting their oral language, that basic conversational English at first is huge. It's a huge step in them building their confidence and being able to understand some things when they come in, depending on what level of English language they have when they start in the school. Yeah, I'd say as a as a school in and of itself, probably just trying to normalize it because they're coming in. Sure. They're stressed already coming in. Um, I think some other things that play into it would be um, just experiences. So my kids that come from different cultures, if they're coming from Asia, from Europe, from uh, from Africa, from South America, Central America, it doesn't matter. It, they're coming from different places, then their experiences are very different. And culturally, that can be a hindrance at or it can also be, I mean, we need to celebrate it. Mm. And so we need to normalize it and help our kids to understand that they bring stuff with them instead of having our classrooms look at it and go, oh, well, this this kid just doesn't know anything because they can't even speak English. Well, there's right. more to it than that. And we need them to be able to see that. So. Right. Not being able to speak English isn't a sign that you are dumb exactly. or that you are unintelligent right. or behind. Um, and I think that is... It's difficult for people, if they aren't actively thinking that, to keep that in mind as they're trying to relate to other people. Because I think naturally it's kind of like, and, and you know, maybe this just happens more with students or with just younger children just because maybe they aren't critically thinking about it in this way. But just like, oh, like, why aren't you trying hard enough? Or like, why aren't you, like, come on, like, I'm, I'm saying things slowly, like, speak to me. And like, all that kind of otherization, I'm sure creates added challenges that teachers then have to face because teachers aren't just there to guide you um, with education and with helping you meet standards to be you know an active part of society but also 
kind of guide you on an emotional level as well. And I'm sure that adds, yeah, it adds extra stressors not only to the student, but also the teacher that they have to, um, you know, then guide this student in a more nuanced way to help find that confidence. I'd say just to kind of piggyback even on that, I think that a lot of times as teachers, we need to be ultra aware of how we are treating the students, right. especially if you're not an EL, you're not an ESL trained or you're not ESL certified or you this isn't what you normally do. So this is new to you. Sometimes it could be easy to look at that student and as a teacher think oh, they're never going to get it. Right. Like, wow, this is taking so long. And when we if we portray that, other students see that. And right. then that's where a lot of that can come in and, and be very detrimental. Right. Um, and even in the other direction, treating the student too much like they are, I need to baby you and I need to be right. careful, right? Because you don't want to then patronize the student. And then that also might create weird animosity between the students. Like, why is he getting all the special attention and I'm not or something? Yeah. So it's a it's a balance for sure. I think it's really helpful when you can get your teachers to work as a team. Yes. And even just at the beginning of the year, I could go to the science teacher and say, okay, what are the vocabulary words or what topics are you going to work on in the next month? Or, you know, and then talk to the other subject matter teachers and just try to get those students um, some extra support with some things that are very basic for native English speakers. I think that helps. And I also think really the coolest part of the year is after the first couple of weeks when some some of your newcomers who maybe speak very, very limited English, a student who's been here for a couple of years will start schooling them on the culture uh, or different teachers. Well, don't do this in this teacher's class, but do this in this teacher's class. Right, <laughs> and, right. And mm-hmm. that's really a cool thing when they can start learning from each other and sharing their cultural experiences. It, it gets them speaking. You can have them write about it. It's something they're familiar with. Like Julie was saying, you... You know, not everyone has the same experiences, but they all have this experience of coming to this new school in this new place or or having this language barrier. Well, and maybe sometimes uh, it takes a little bit of creativity in the curriculum um, or in how you present the information to get them engaged. So, you know, for example, like you said, coming from a different country and you're speaking a different language, that creates a lot of cultural divide. But where are the things that, you know, all these kids have in common? Do they all watch SpongeBob, right? Do they all (laughs) um, like playing this game? Are they all on TikTok? You know, like these little things that um, I think kind of transcend cultural divide or country divide because of the sort of globalized society we live in. I think is is something that should definitely be played up and focused on to try to get uh, English learners more integrated in the classroom, at least more comfortable, or maybe to guide the curriculum in a way that feels more like a, a level playing field for everyone, you know, and just little examples, little small ways to change the curriculum. Exactly. The small ways are so important because, yeah. you know, a teacher maybe that's new to working with English learners and wondering what are the best practices, how can I do that? I, I really think building in those small things, baby steps. This week, I'm going to do this. Okay, that bombed. I'm going to try something else. Or that was awesome. I'm going to add on this part. Because as you, you can't do it all. Mm-hmm. You have to do all these things. You have to meet all these standards. You have to be accountable for so many things and you know worry about all the little personalities and families in your classes. And so if you can just start incorporating one thing at a time, um, 
by the end of the year, even by the end of the month or t- quarter, you could have so many cool new pieces worked into your classroom. Right, exactly. So there are some states that naturally, I think, are more prepared for English learners because of how many English language learners make up their student body. So in states like California, Nevada, New Mexico, even right here in Texas, um, English language learners make up more than 15% of the student body. In California alone, it's 21%, which is incredible. One in five students um, is likely to be an English learner. So how have you seen those states? Um, I don't know if you have any examples specifically, but how have you seen those states find successful ways to standardize some of their English language learning approaches? It depends on the schedule too, I think, just the setup of the classroom or the campus. For example, where I taught, my classroom was all English learners that had that still had to meet the English language or the ELA standards for Mm. ninth grade, for 10th grade, for 11th grade. So some schools are set up so they have a whole classroom of students and you're, you're not, you're staying up at that same standard of grade level criteria or information, but you're having to add so much more support in there. Or some schools, um, I'm thinking of a high school that is, has a whole wing of English learners. So they have that kind of setup. Not every school or district has have those resources. So if what do you do in the case where you have one student with English language right. learning? I think that, and I also think that um, a lot of the schools in California, I know here in Texas, you have the, bio, the bilingual classrooms to help out, and then you also have dual language in several other states that right. have a high population um, of English learners. and that's great because what that helps with is it helps the student to continue in their first language in their learning in the content area but then they're also learning the english alongside it so it looks a little bit different than just than just the english learning it's kind of mixing in okay we're still going to work with your first language as well and then we're going to bring in your um, your second language and build up on that and build our vocabulary there right so, Jamie, I want to actually focus this one to you specifically. You've taught in um, English second language countries like Costa Rica, like Honduras. What strategies did you learn during your time there, uh, even if they weren't specifically for English language learning, um, you know, with students that maybe have never been exposed to English in a formal sense, or even if you were just teaching Spanish to them? What are some strategies you learned during your time there that work well here in the States for English learning? And feel free to dive into, you know, any maybe cultural differences in how they approach education. Um, yeah, or just, you know, the resources they have available. Sure. Break it down. In Costa Rica, I was working with Spanish native speakers and in their Spanish language arts class. So the interesting part that I've taken away into the English learner's classroom from that experience is to truly see, even having learned languages myself and studied about languages and learning languages, to truly see that learning a language is explicit. You need to learn the the grammar. You need to learn, you know, specific academic vocabulary. But also we all know that learning a language, you go through the same steps. So once you've learned your first language... 
learning another language, you're just following that pattern that you've already used to produce the first language or, right. you know, moving on down. So that's what I pulled from that. But from um, teaching ESL in Honduras, I was in an international school. So that brings in some really cool pieces because you have students coming from all over the world and are maybe not necessarily from Honduras. Some were, some were not. And being able to see the different cultural major mixing pot when that happens. So um, really, it's still looking at those best practices and that process of learning a language that um, works there as well as works here and anywhere else in the country or in, in the world. In the universe. In the universe, yes. The, the <laughs> universal literally approaches to education. Um, Julie, I know you lived in, was it Honduras, Honduras. as well? Yep. Yeah. Um, and you weren't teaching there necessarily, but you grew up um, in that country. What are some some educational approaches that you experienced firsthand that you found maybe unique or interesting once you entered your career in education that maybe you now apply to your English learners? Let's see. Well, it's kind of like going backwards because I was the Spanish learner. Right. So the way that I learned was through a lot of visual and the things that I would see and acting things out. And um, and because I was in fifth grade at the time when I when I first moved down, the students that I had in my class were coming in as newcomers in fifth grade. And I was like, well, as well as I speak Spanish, one day you'll be able to speak English if you keep at it. Right. And so having b- being able to share kind of that um, experience was very helpful. And then going in and going, realizing myself when I was their age, for me, it was the Bix. Like it was, you know, I didn't feel comfortable speaking in Spanish in the classroom right away. Yeah. Because they spoke better English than I spoke Spanish. So I get it. Like it helped me as a teacher to really empathize with them. Right. So I think that was probably one of the biggest things for me. I feel like it's obviously easier also when you're in that critical development period as a child to learn another language like if you're I I learned about this um, when I was taking my Spanish courses in college and I don't remember the exact age frame but it's like four to twelve or something like that like you can basically with enough exposure learn any language because your brain is hardwired for it once you level up past that and you become a teenager basically it becomes a lot harder for you to learn a new language are there any specific approaches that y'all have seen for addressing English learners that are pretty much already uh, set with their language and you're having to approach it more from like an adult teaching perspective than a natural fluency perspective? Man, um, learning English is hard. Yeah, oh, I know. <laughs> and depending on where they're coming in from, if you're coming in from a Spanish-speaking culture, it's even harder because your vowels sound one of five ways. It's yeah, either right. I, A, E, O, O. You know, so, it's one of so those. So straightforward. Whereas in English, it's so different. Yeah. Um, so it, it, just, it depends on where the students are coming from, even what they'll be able to pronounce. And as a teacher, you have to realize that, okay, well, maybe they won't be able to make, you know, form those words exactly the same. But if we can get as close as we can and teach them tricks to... Um, form those sounds then that's what we have to do that's right when you're uh, 
fun fact, <laughs> when you're about five, your vocal cords harden in certain spots and you physically, only about 5% of the population can truly be fluent in a language, meaning you can pronounce every single sound in these other languages because right. physically 95% of the population can't make that exact sound after the age of about five years old. Huh. So there's some things like Julie said, you know, being very flexible in the classroom like you would anywhere yeah. are some major things to remember that students are going to struggle in some right. areas for I mean, sure. I, I was watching this video and it was like, we have like 10 different ways to pronounce O-U-G-H. And I can't even imagine what it must be like to see that and try to understand what the rules are around through versus tough versus thought. You know what I mean? And even those three, you're pronouncing O-U-G-H differently. So, yeah, I think once you have to teach it in a more like... It I, becomes I what, what Jamie said earlier. Right. You have to start to really explicitly teach the academic English. Right. And and it, it's not one of the highest producing... Um, factors in learning a language but yeah. it's very important right right so i think what's great about developing nuanced teaching methods for english language learners is that like y'all have said those best practices can extend to the rest of the classroom so what are some things that y'all have found work especially well for english learners that have worked for the whole classroom and honestly improve um goal setting standard achievement um, and just general learning in the classroom for everyone. Well, I definitely think with the goal setting, the one-on-one -on -one attention, even if it's 30 seconds meeting, you know, walking through the classroom mm -hmm. and talking through something is super important. Um, of course, having the vocabulary labels and different games, making things fun, making them moving around, not just sitting in their desks, um, having different environments throughout your classroom that they can work in because you have this effective filter, which is like, I'm scared right now. So I maybe my effective filters up when I talk with the teacher, meaning I'm scared, I don't want to perform, I don't want to talk. But maybe sitting in front of the computer, it goes down and I feel more relaxed at first. Or, you know, maybe I'm more comfortable talking with a peer or, you know, in a group or just one on one. So finding out those little nuances of all your students and creating a classroom that provides a variety of not only looking at the reading, speaking, listening, and writing at all times, but also what is what is the social environment for learning for your students too. So it's, I think it's also really important that when we're working with our English learners that we set a baseline at the beginning of the year um, so that we can figure out where they, at, where, where they actually are, what they do know, what they don't know, so that then we can start at those lower levels and start to build on those and do some progress monitoring. So we're using the data that we get from to, to help them grow. Um, I think then pulling them into small groups and working with them in small groups with their specific needs, and you might have multiple students that need the same thing. Sure. Great. And then the vocabulary, vocabulary, vocabulary. That's the one thing that even I, like, I'm still learning vocabulary in Spanish and, you know, been doing this for years. So... I think vocabulary is always going to be important and that's important for all of our students because our students now come in with less vocabulary than they did 30, 40, 50 years ago. So right. vocabulary has just for us has gone downhill a lot. Um, academic vocabulary is still important. And like Jamie said, having them work together with their peers is going to help them tremendously because students 
can tell each other, ah, that's not how you say that and joke around <laughs> and it doesn't hurt their feelings. Right. Whereas in a, in a whole group in a class there, that's, that's a little bit more um, intimidating. Yeah. So I think those things are, are all really important. And I think it's really important for teachers to not be uncomfortable with noise because I mean, talking, working in Costa Rica for a year, people don't, be quiet there. Yeah, <laughs> the right. classroom is loud at Bubbles all times. Bubbles and bunny tails, everyone. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Right. I mean, it if it's quiet, <laughs> it is. there's a scary something going on. Uh-huh. So when I transferred that into the U.S. when, you know, if my classroom was quiet, it made me uncomfortable because you want people speaking. You want your students, you know, at all times you want some speaking. Yes, it has to be quiet sometimes. There are some serious moments. However, you need them working with each other, and that many times requires noise right so don't be afraid of it i'm gonna add to that just because that was costa rica yeah i mean that's 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 our hispanic um tendency we like we're social yes okay it's a social thing very much so whereas if i have a student that's coming from um from france or a student that's coming from uh from japan from south korea I want I'm, I may have to encourage them to be a little noisier right or to you know to not be afraid to speak to each other or laugh or giggle or because they might be used to a little bit more structure and a little bit more um, just the rigidity rigid yeah, yeah. thank mm-hmm. you sure um, so I think that that's that that's important to play in when we're talking about English learners in general as well yeah for sure I think that's super important actually Julie because even though I say don't be afraid of noise you need to be very culturally aware of what people are used to in your classroom and what what makes them tick and what makes them be most productive. Right, exactly. All right, so like many of our other conversations with iStation, we're talking data, and data must be extremely useful for unpacking the best curriculum and the best path forward for English language learning in a district classroom or even just for an individual student. So how have you all seen data become particularly useful for unpacking that path forward for English language learning and feel free to point to iStation and um, some of the technology or programs that y'all have um, that are extremely useful. I think that you know that personal time with a student as I was saying is so important and data is an awesome time for you to be able to get that in because you can do it really quick you know with iStation reports you can see you can talk with the student did your dot go up or down? Right. Did your line go up or down? Okay, it went up. What did you do this this month to make it go up? Oh, I read at home with my parents or, you know, I really focused this month and last month I was walking in the clouds or whatever. It, did it go down? What did I do? Well, I didn't read this month at right. home and I didn't do this. Okay, next month I'm going to do it because I can see. I can visually see. And, you know, there's not a lot of time in the classroom, right? We have a lot of things to do. But you can do that quick check-in with students with data points and say, what color is it? What did it go up or down? And and what what did you do? And that makes them take some more ownership of of their own success. Yeah, I think that metacognition is like that word um, is <laughs> yes. really huge, especially with level. that middle school and those upper grade level students. And you can do that with the lower grade level students as well. Um, I think doing those formative assessments monthly. That's what we do with iStation allows us to then go in and tweak what we're doing and say, oh, you know what? Well, maybe we need to change this. Maybe we need to change that. Oh, I need to have you in a small group and I see this is a priority. So this is what my alert is. And I have this lesson that I need to work with you on. It's very targeted and focused. So I can directly work with that student to give them exactly what they need. And I really like 
how we pinpoint it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's important. And then the lessons that we have, like I mentioned before, they, a lot of times they'll have an additional piece. And I like this about the, um, the middle school ones. We have a ton of great vocabulary visas. And within those, at the end of the lessons, they have additional you know, technology. Pe- oh, let's do some technology piece. Let's sure. do some English learner piece. Yeah. Let's have reteach piece. So it has some different pieces for modifications for the students. And I think that that's huge. So I think data lends itself not only to the reflection piece with the students and reflection with the parents even. So it's super easy for parents to understand. Um, if you have parents who really are involved and want to understand what their students are doing, it's a great piece to, to show with them. I also think, you know, you have students who are low in everything and you think the teacher's so overwhelmed. What, where do I start? And we like to, in our professional development sessions, point out, you know, teachers know this. It's just something that you don't always have time to sit and think about. So where do I start? If I look at that hierarchy of reading, if my student's struggling in phonemic awareness and everything else on up to text fluency, I'm not going to start my interventions in text fluency at the very top because everything else builds to the text fluency, right? Right. I'm going to start and fill those gaps lower below and start even though I might still be working on text fluency a little, I'm going to do my really intensive things to build that foundational piece underneath it. I think the one last thing about data, last thing, right? <laughs> we could go on forever yeah, about data. Um, the other thing about data, I think, is that, like Jamie said, a lot of students struggle and they know that they're struggling. But if I can look at the data and say, okay, yeah, maybe you're not in this top tier of students, but guess what? You've grown. Right. And that's what we're looking at. So celebrate everything. If they're growing, celebrate it. It doesn't matter if they're still down in the um, 20th percentile of students across the U.S. That They grew. Right. They're not in the sixth anymore. Right. So I think that's really important to celebrate growth wherever it is. So exciting. Definitely. <laughs> and just to kind of wrap things up, are there any specific partnerships that you can speak to or any... Um, just specific rollouts of technology like iStations that have really proven themselves to be useful um, structuring tools and like focused, nuanced tools for English language learning? I would say that really anyone who partners with us, that's one of the first things that I ask when I'm in my trainings. I'll ask them, well, do you have uh, English learners in your classrooms? Or how? what is your, like, ethnicity-wise, what is your percentage of English learners that you have. Right. And once I know that, then I can go to the fact that this is an excellent product for that because we hit on all of these different um, correlations with WIDA that that really meet those students' needs where they're at. And so pretty much anyone that partners with us, they're getting that benefit of what they need for the English learning. And we've seen a lot of great results in different areas. And I would also say even just our WIDA correlation document we have on our website really is straightforward and easy to see, even though this is how iStation correlates with WIDA, it lets the teacher see, oh, these are all things that support English learners. And, oh, I'm already doing half of these things or 80% of these things. I just need to incorporate, tweak this little thing to help really support them. On our blog site, we have a lot of different examples. So you can definitely go to www.istation.com and look at the blog site. Mm. Um, on our blog spot, we ha- we feature a lot of different success stories. Um, I know that we do have a 
couple of success stories uh, with using the Spanish and English product together. And that's been really helpful in uh, directing the curriculum and directing instruction for several Very different nice. schools. Um, Such as Rio Grande City Consolidated Independent School District. That's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> Next. <laughs> San Jose USD Belmont Cragen Elementary School and Chicago Public Schools. Oh, wow. Very cool. And it seems like I, I believe that the Chicago Public Schools, we just did a, a pretty good article um, recently on them. So some great stuff going on. Um, if you are teaching English learners, just remember some of the stuff that we just talked about, especially remembering that they just need the same stuff that any of your other learners need. Right. I love it. And be kind to yourself. Baby steps. One step at a time and build upon all of your successes. Yeah. And, you know, I think a tip that really uh, I speak to, like, from my own personal experiences is when my teachers treated me like an adult to some capacity, right, however much is appropriate. But if they treated me like a an independent human being and allowed me to give feedback or allowed me to kind of have at least a small role in guiding my own education, I think that works really well regardless of that kind of language barrier. So, you know, if you don't treat your uh, your English language learning student like another, either in a kind of a positive direction of like babying them too much or kind of in the negative direction of stigmatizing them or feeling fed up with the fact that they don't know English, that middle ground, that kind of like how can I treat you like an independent thinker and what's going to work for you I think that's just going to work across the board and probably a great mentality to have for all your students. Agreed. All right. Well, Julie Robinson, Jamie Herbs, thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast. It was a pleasure getting to chat again. I always love getting iStation in the studio. I'm looking forward to round, what is it, six or seven uh, coming up? I mean, whatever it is, I'm, I'm ready for the next one. <laughs> thank, thank you, you for so having much us for the in. opportunity. Absolutely. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. And if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous ones, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. Make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.